The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you this morning, if you would, to open your Bibles to Gospel of Luke, Chapter 3. Gospel of Luke, Chapter 3. We're going to look this morning... <clears throat> At uh, verses 21 and 22, Luke writes, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I'm well pleased. It's the word of the Lord for us this morning. <clears throat> As we jump back into the, the, the Gospel of Luke, we're reminded, uh, we've, we've sort of been looking at John the Baptist, and now the camera, as we've been saying, is swinging back over to the Lord Jesus, and we'll remain on him for the remainder of this Gospel. But the last thing that we saw about Christ, about the Lord Jesus, was when he was 12 years old, and his parents had brought him to the temple to be dedicated. Do you recall that? It was the last thing that we saw. When we jump back into verse 21 of, of the Gospel of Luke in chapter 3, it's now been 18 years. 18 years have passed since that visit to the temple. Uh, and, and in those 18 years, we really don't have much information about what's been going on. Uh, it appears that Jesus has lived in relative anonymity for those 18 years. He's lived in his hometown. He's lived with his family. He's learned his father's trade at some point. And he's been, from all outside appearances, just a normal Galilean. He's lived a normal life in a normal home. Nothing really about him would have stood out or made him some sort of a celebrity or anybody that people would have caught notice of. He's lived really in, in anonymity, which is remarkable when you think in terms of who he is, the very son of God, uh, living a humble, normal life in an out-of-the-way sort of a place, and that's precisely what he's been doing now for 18 years. But now, all of a sudden, in the, in the midst of John's baptizing ministry, the, Jesus shows up at the Jordan River. He comes out from, from Galilee, from his hometown, and he travels up to where John is doing his ministry at the Jordan River. And, and as was normal, normally the case in John's ministry, as we've been tracking this, there was always a crowd that had sort of gathered and come out to where John was. And they were listening to John preach, and they were coming to be baptized by John, really as a sign of internal repentance. And, and, and on this particular day, among the crowd, completely unknown, is the Son of God. He shows up, and he's there, mixed among the crowd. He's just one of the faces in the, in the group that's out there. Nobody would have noticed him as anyone different. He's just there. Other people are coming, and they're all listening to John, and, and they're stepping forward, and they're coming into the water with John, and one by one, they're, they're being baptized by John. All of a sudden... Uh, an otherwise normal day by the, the Jordan River becomes absolutely extraordinary. Because out of the, the sea of faces, out of the, the crowd that's gathered around the water, there steps Jesus Christ himself. And John finds himself face to face in the water 
with the Son of God. It's not really clear uh, when we walk through the gospel record exactly how well John knew Jesus up to this point. It's a little bit unclear. It's a little bit fuzzy. We, we know that they were cousins. They were related. Uh, we found that out earlier in the gospel, but they lived in, in different locations. And, and so we don't know if they had met previous to this in person or if they had had any conversation or what information they knew about one another at this point. We just know that they were cousins. From Matthew's account, we know that that John at least had some sense that when he came face to face with Jesus, that Jesus was superior to him. He knew that in some way, Jesus was more righteous than he was. And that, that really, he had no place baptizing Jesus. In fact, Jesus, he says, needed to be baptizing him. We know that from Matthew's account. If we were to flip over to the Gospel of John, though, we would, we would come to understand that, that John the Baptist didn't fully know Jesus' true identity at this point. He knew something about him. He knew some sense about him, but he didn't know the whole story. If you were to look at John chapter 1, verse 32, we, we find this. John writes, And John bore witness, quote, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I've seen and I've borne witness that this is the Son of God. So when Jesus initially steps into the water, he knows something about Jesus. He knows enough to know that he's more righteous than he is and that he has no reason to be being baptized there in the water as a sign of repentance. But he doesn't understand, at least with crystal clarity, the full nature of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. It's not until the supernatural things take place in the midst of this baptism that John puts all the pieces together and he understands fully what's happening right in front of him. And from every outward appearance... John baptizes Jesus, just like he baptized everyone else. He immersed him there in the Jordan River, and he lifted him back up. And up to this point, from all outward appearance, if you were there, and you were watching, and you were looking on from the outside, it would have looked like just another guy stepping in the water, getting dunked under the water, and coming back up again. But at some point, it goes from being ordinary to being extraordinary. Because at some point, either during the baptism or immediately following the baptism, something amazing takes place. Luke tells us the Holy Spirit descends upon the Lord Jesus like a dove and he lights on him. And he tells us that that the heavens open up and a voice thunders from heaven and speaks. It's the voice of the Father. And this becomes a defining moment in the life and the ministry of Jesus From this point on, he'll no longer be anonymous. From this point on, his public ministry is launched and it begins, and his march to the cross begins in the the waters of the Jordan River with John. But before we dive into the details of that a bit, we need to note one quick thing, and this is a sort of a side trail. I'm going to try not to go too far down it. But we need to note that here in this account of the baptism of Jesus, we have one of the clearest indications and pictures of the doctrine of the Trinity that we have anywhere in the, in the New Testament, anywhere in the Bible, in fact. It's one of the clearest, clearest evidences of Trinity 
that you see anywhere. Now, the doctrine of Trinity is a foundational doctrine of the Christian faith. It is what separates Christians from Jews. It's what separates Christians from Muslims. It's what separates Christians from every polytheistic religion in the world, from every Hindu and from every Buddhist. It's an important doctrine. Wayne Grudem, the theologian, writes this by way of defining the doctrine of Trinity, and for our purpose this morning, it will be sufficient. He says this is what the doctrine of Trinity describes for us. The reality that God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God, and there is one God. So we're to put it in sort of bullet points. The, the main ideas contained when we talk about the doctrine of Trinity are really these things. There's one God, God is three persons, and each person is fully God. And you say, well, that's confusing. It doesn't make human sense to me. Well, you're right. There is mystery here in the doctrine of Trinity. You'll never fully wrap your brain around how this is so, but I'm telling you this morning, historically, in the Christian church, this is what the Bible declares to be true. That somehow in the mystery upon mysteries, in the glory of the, of the, the God of the universe, that he at, at one and the same time is one God, but he exists as three persons. And each of those persons is fully God. It's a little confusing when we read that kind of a definition because when we think of the word person, we think of a, a separate individual. Wayne Grudem is helpful here. I don't know if this will clarify it, but I give it to you just in case it might help. When he talks about personage or the persons of God, here's what Grudem says. He says, because the existence of three persons in one God is something beyond our understanding, Christian theology has come to use the word person to speak of these differences in relationship not because we fully understand what is meant by the word person when referring to the Trinity, but rather so that we might say something instead of saying nothing at all. So the word person doesn't fully capture this idea, but it does give us something to say that at least helps us understand that in one God, he exists as three persons, and that, that division of some sort exists in the relationships of the three persons of the Trinity and how they function in the world. There are other scriptures that, that, that point to this, but here in Luke's uh, rendition of the baptism of Jesus, we see in one place the three persons of the Trinity. We have standing in the Jordan River the Son, the second person of the Trinity. We have a voice from heaven, the Father, the first person of the Trinity speaking, and we have this, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, uh, descending like a dove. And so in one point in time, you could observe the one God in three persons. Now there are all sorts of other places we could go in Scripture. We could spend weeks really trying to dice out the doctrine of Trinity, but I give you just a couple of other anchor points for you to put in your notes. Genesis 1.26, right at the beginning of the Bible we see hints of this. Um, when we look at the creation story and we're told that God said this, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And right in the, in the beginning in the creation story, we see God speaking in, in pluralistic terms of himself. Now I remember very vividly my, my freshman year in college. It was my second semester, my first semester at a Christian university. I had felt God's call in my life to go into ministry, and I was super excited to go to a Christian university and have my first Old Testament class. I had grown up in church, and I had some sense for the Bible and 
the stories of the Bible and some sense of theology, but needed that theological education and was looking forward with great excitement to learning about the Old Testament. I was ignorant to a lot of things as I quickly found out that semester, but really at the beginning of the semester, uh, early on we were working right through the Old Testament, Genesis, the creation story, and I'll never forget the day in class I was sitting there. There was a class of about uh, 50 or 60 people because everybody to graduate had to take Old Testament, and so everybody was there at some point. Uh, and so mixed in with the class were people like me who were studying uh, with the goal of ministry, and the others were, you know, people who had every other major, but they had to take this class to graduate. And so you had all sorts of different um, uh, uh, levels of understanding or familiarity with the Bible. Uh, and so early on, I'm new at the school. I don't really know anybody. I'm commuting to campus, haven't met really anybody, but I'm thinking, this is going to be great. And, and the professor, I remember him very vividly. His name was Robert Burke, Dr. Robert Burke. He was a little taller than me. He had a huge nose that was about three shades redder than the rest of his face. I'll never forget that. I don't know why, but I remember that. And, and he had this booming voice that just sounded like he had authority. And, and we got to this passage, and this was like early in the class, you know, in the semester. And he asked the question to the class. He says, uh, does anyone know why here we have the pronouns our? And us, why is it plural? Why does God speak in plural pronouns here? And I thought, oh, I know this one. I know this one. So I put my hand up in the air. I got this. I'm going to impress all these classmates that I know something about the Bible. And he called on me, and, and I said, well, I said, um, I said uh, uh, this is a, uh, uh, an early indication of the doctrine of Trinity. God exists as one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and so it's appropriate for uh, the pronouns to be plural here because, because he's referring to himself uh, in that sort of a way. And I was so proud of myself because I had the right answer. Uh, just beaming with pride, sitting up straight in my desk, at which point he says immediately, I was hoping somebody would say that. And I began immediately to doubt. Uh-oh. This thing isn't working out the way I had thought it was going to work out here. And he began to describe the doctrine of Trinity in the most childlike terms. and made it sound like the most foolish thing anyone could believe. And I'll never forget the last sentence he said after his, after his explanation. He said, but if we take the Bible seriously, we have to conclude that an ancient author could have not possibly had any sense for a doctrine like the doctrine of Trinity that is never mentioned in the Old Testament and only vaguely alluded to in the New. At which point I'm now beneath my desk. Uh, I had never heard someone say something like that before. I had never encountered a liberal theologian. I had never encountered somebody who claimed to be a Christian but wrote off half of the Old Testament as as metaphor until that day. I went on to explain, in case you're wondering what he thought that meant, he thought that meant God and the angels. But somehow, I suppose, in his understanding, we're created in the image of God and angels. But I'm looking at you, and you don't look very angelic this morning, so I'm thinking that's probably not true. I'm just kidding. Some of you do. Others, maybe not. I'm not looking angelic. But the doctrine of Trinity is far more than something like he characterized it that day. We see it all throughout the, 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 the New Testament for sure and signs of it in the Old. Uh, we could spend more time on that, but we need to get to our text this morning. Um, 
if you want more on the Trinity, there's a little video clip put out by a Lutheran pastor on his website, Lutheran Satire. If you like satire and you like humor and you're not offended by something being just a little tad crass, uh, you can go Google St. Patrick's Bad Analogies and you look at the video clip and uh, you'll, you'll get a sense for, for uh, the great theologians, Donald and Connell. Uh, but uh, do that in your spare time if you need to laugh. But back to the baptism of Jesus, I just want to point out to you that idea that here in the baptism, we see all three persons of the Trinity clearly uh, in one place, in one point in time. But back to the baptism of Jesus, this is significant. It is a very easy portion of Scripture for us to just read over and to sort of plow past it and overlook it. And we look at it and we read through it in our, in our quiet time. We say, oh yeah, Jesus got baptized, and so we should get baptized. On to the temptation. That's where the excitement is. Jesus in the wilderness with the devil. But that would be a huge mistake. Because the baptism of Jesus has tremendous significance for your life and for mine. I want to try and unfold that for you this morning in the time that we have together. And I want to sort of hang it on three words to help you remember it this morning. The words identification, empowerment, and affirmation. Those three words. Identification, empowerment, and affirmation. We're going to sort of hang everything around those and sort of unfold that together. Now, if you recall the sort of the context here, John is baptizing by the river. What is, what is John's baptism? John's baptism is a baptism of repentance for sin. People are coming, and his message that he's preaching is you need to repent. You need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You need to prepare your hearts for the coming Messiah. We've walked through all that together. That was his message. And so the people would come, and they would hear that, and they would come under conviction, and they would step into the waters, and, and they would submit themselves to baptism. It was their way of recognizing sin and showing repentance. It was their way of renouncing the false religion of Judaism that was around them and, and looking to Abraham and their good works for their salvation. It was their way of, of saying, I'm longing for the Messiah to come, and my heart is prepared to receive him when he shows up. And if that's what the baptism is about, and we see Jesus step into the water and submit to be baptized, it raises a question immediately, or at least it should in our minds, why would Jesus submit to that kind of a baptism? Why would Jesus need to be baptized? Why would Jesus want to be baptized? He was, of course, sinless. He had no sins for which he needed to repent. He didn't need to awaken a longing in his heart for the coming Messiah. He was indeed, in his own self, the Messiah. Why did he need to be baptized? He embodied perfect truth. He didn't need to renounce a false system that he had bought into of untruth. Well, John wondered the same thing. It's clear from Matthew's account. You recall, if you read Matthew's gospel, Matthew in 3.14 says John would have prevented him. John stops him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? John knew enough to know that Jesus didn't need repentance. He knew enough to know that Jesus was superior to him, but he didn't fully understand the answer to the question of why. Why would Jesus want to do something like this? There are many conjectures to, the, to answer the question why. There are those who hold to a, a doctrine called adoptionism. And they say, well, here's the answer to the question. The answer is Jesus was just a man up to that point. He was just a normal man. And it's at his baptism when the Holy Spirit comes down that the divine adopted him. 
that he becomes the Son of God in his baptism. So he needed to be baptized in order to become the Son of God. That's an ancient heresy that pops up from time to time. Jesus has always been the Son of God from eternity. It's not what's going on at his baptism. You may run into some charismatics who would say, well, this is a baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's a, a sort of a second blessing kind of thing that Christians today should be pursuing on their own. Well, that's not at all what's happening here. Some would say, well, he's there to confess sin on behalf of all of Israel. Well, maybe, but there's no indication in the text that he has anything to do with confession of sin on behalf of Israel. Some would say, well, he's there to show, show support for John's ministry. Well, it certainly may have done that, but again, nothing in the text indicates that that's the main issue here. Very prominent view that you may run across is the idea that, that the re well, the answer is this. John, Jesus was baptized in order to, to set an example for us to follow. Jesus was baptized for us as an example for us to follow. He knew that we would need to be baptized, so he went and got baptized in order to show us how to do it. That was really what I was taught growing up. But there are some issues with that. The issue is this. His baptism was nothing like our Christian baptism. It wasn't John's baptism. It was different than that. John's baptism of everyone else, as we talked about, was a repentance. And, 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 and it had no supernatural features to it. Christian baptism on the other side of the cross has a very specific purpose. It symbolizes the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And it publicly declares that a person has repented of their sin and been washed clean, forgiven. Jesus, again, had no need for forgiveness. His death, burial, and resurrection are still yet in the future. No, his baptism wasn't John's baptism, and his baptism wasn't Christian baptism. His baptism was a singularly unique event. It was a singularly unique event. There was no baptism that ever has been or ever will be like Jesus' baptism. There wasn't one before this time, and there wasn't one that will ever come after. There's a whole lot more going on here than Jesus trying to show some sort of example. The only example he gives is for us how to do it, to be immersed, for all my Presbyterian friends. He shows us that much. Some would argue that what's going on here is really Jesus is inaugurating his public ministry. Well, that is certainly a part of it. This is his first public act of ministry. But there's more. Well, the biblical answer in the text in Matthew 3.15 tells us this. Jesus says to John this, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. All right, so here's the answer to the question. John, we need to do this in order to fulfill all righteousness. Well, that clears it up, right? That makes it perfect sense, perfectly precise. You understand we can move on. Okay, I'm looking at your faces, I'm guessing. That doesn't suffice as an answer, right? What does it mean to fulfill all righteousness? Well, that's Jesus' way of saying to John, John, this is the way it needs to be. This is the, this is the part of the plan. This is the way things need to happen in order for the plan of God to be fulfilled. So what is the main purpose? What's the main issue going on here? The main thing that's going on here in Jesus' baptism, I'm convinced, is his identification with sinners. That word identification. Jesus could have launched his ministry anywhere, anywhere he wanted to. He could have gone to Jerusalem. He could have gone to the, the center of religious power. 
He could have identified himself with the religious leaders, but he doesn't do that. Instead, to launch his public ministry, he goes out to the river. He gets in a crowd of sinners where John is baptizing, and he chooses to stand in water and to be baptized, to identify with that crowd of sinners. And in, in, a, in a very real sense, to foreshadow the redemptive work that he is about to launch. The Jesus who stood in the Jordan River and participated in a baptism of repentance, standing in the place of sinners, though he had no sin for which to repent, is the same Jesus who is going to be nailed to a Roman cross where he dies for sins that are not his either, standing in the place of sinners. In Isaiah 53, verse 12, Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would do this very thing. Here, this is God speaking. Therefore I will divide him, speaking of the Messiah, a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many. Jesus was baptized to, to show what his ministry was all about. It was all about identification with sinners, standing in their place. Jesus had a very, very clear understanding of what he'd come to do. In Luke chapter 19, we'll get there uh, before I retire. It says this in verse 10, For the Son of Man, Jesus speaking, came to seek and to save whom? The lost. Jesus understood that his ministry was a ministry aimed at sinners. It was a ministry to sinners. He didn't come to build up the religious. He came to identify with and to, and to die for sinners. And all throughout his ministry, his ministry is primarily a ministry to sinners. You see it all throughout, and we'll see it all throughout Luke's gospel. You can turn a couple pages to Luke chapter 5, and you'll see Jesus going about his ministry, and he saves a filthy, rotten, despicable tax collector called Levi. And immediately upon saving him, he says to Levi, Levi, we're going to your house, let's have a party. And Levi goes out and he invites all of his despicable, filthy, sinning tax collector friends, and he gathers them up at his house for a, a big meal, and Jesus shows up, and Jesus identifies around the table with these sinners. The pious religious leaders were none too happy about it either, were they? They, would, they stayed away from sinners. They kept their distance from sinners. They would never be associated with filth like that. After all, they might touch one of them and become unclean. How ridiculous an idea to identify with sinners like that. And so in Luke chapter 5, verse 30 through 32, it tells us the Pharisees and the scribes, they grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick... I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. His whole ministry was all about identifying with sinners and saving them. You may remember, he, he walks up on a scene where, where a group of, of people have, have picked up stones and they've gathered around this woman who's been caught in the act of adultery. Do you remember the story? She's been dragged out of, of whatever the place was where the adultery was taking place. And in all of her embarrassment and shame and humiliation, the crowd has picked up stones because the law says she's to be, she's to be killed for her transgression. And Jesus steps into the scene and, and with this, this person caught red-handed, if you will, in sin. And he says to the crowd, Here's an idea. Whichever one of you has no sin, you go ahead and throw the first stone. And all the people walk away. And Jesus looks to this woman, and he says to her, do you remember what he says? Where are your accusers? 
Where are your accusers? Go and sin no more. Go, go and don't sin anymore. Jesus is walking along the road and he sees a, a, a woman by the well, Samaritan woman by the well, asks for a drink, something a Jewish man would never do, certainly something a Jewish religious man would never do. A woman and a Samaritan? Could it get any worse? tells her to go and get her husband. She says, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right. You've had several husbands, and the one that you're living with now is not your husband. And her eyes must have gotten that big, right? And in that exchange, he reveals himself as the Messiah who's come to save her. People like Levi, people like Zacchaeus, even at the very end of his life, he's hanging on a Roman cross, and he's surrounded by filthy thieves. And before he breathes his last breath, he looks at one of them who's lived a life of debauchery and says to him what? Today, you will be with me in paradise. His ministry was all about identification with sinners in order to save them, in order to stand in their place and to die for their sins. And that's exactly what he is showing us here. As Jesus steps into the water of the Jordan River, he's acknowledging the holiness of God, and he's acknowledging humanity's sin. And he is publicly saying for everybody who will watch, I will take it, I will clear it. That's the heart of the gospel. Here's the truth of identification. Jesus identified with sinners so that sinners could identify with him. That's what's happening here. 1 Peter 3 verse 18 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh and being made alive in the spirit. Christ identified with sinners so that he might die in our place, that we might place our faith in him and be identified with him. If you're here this morning and you are a sinner, when you read this story, you need to understand that the Lord Jesus stands in the river as a declaration that he has come to stand in your place to identify your sinful rebellion with his sinless perfection so that he might die in your place, pay for your sin, so that you might in turn identify yourself with him through repentance and faith and be reconciled to God. That's what this is about. But there's more. Luke continues by saying this, now when all the people were baptized... And when he had also, or when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. So all of a sudden, things take a turn for the supernatural here, don't they? The heavens open up. Can you imagine being there? Can you imagine being by the river that day, just watching the guy get baptized and out of nowhere, the heavens open up like a, like a can of tuna or something? I mean, it just rolls open. What has always been veiled is now unveiled. And somehow you can, you can catch a view or a glimpse from, from, from earth, from ground zero, up into heaven. What that looked like, I wish I knew. Luke, where are you, man? You should have told us. But he doesn't tell us. 
He tells us that, that the emphasis here is that there was something literal and something visible that was happening, that God himself was somehow in a very public way breaking into human experience by way of miracle. It's happened a couple of other times in, in the Bible. In Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the thirteenth year, Ezekiel writes, In the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the, uh, the Chabar Canal, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. It's Ezekiel, right? My man Ezekiel is here today. All right. The heavens were opened, Ezekiel says, and I saw a vision of God. If you're to flip to the New Testament and you see the death of the first martyr, Stephen, when they're casting stones at this man, he's literally in the midst of being killed. He looks up and it's, he says that I saw the Son of God standing at the right hand of the Father. God peels back heaven, uh, the, peels back the sky, if you will, and he gives him a glimpse of the Lord Jesus standing in his honor. So something similar happens here. Jesus was praying, we're told. We don't know what he was praying we do know he was a man of prayer. Luke will show us this. And in the midst of that, the Holy Spirit descends in bodily form. Now the Holy Spirit, who is normally not revealed visibly in this particular case, shows himself. He shows himself as some sort of a visible bodily manifestation. We have no idea whatsoever what that looks like. Again, I wish Luke had given us more. But he gives us this, this phrase in bodily form to let us know this wasn't something that just happened inside Jesus' consciousness. This was a, a literal, visible thing that was able to be seen. It was, in fact, the public anointing of the Son in his work of redemption by the Spirit coming down. A lot of times people think the Spirit actually looks like a dove. That's not what Luke says. He says that he came down in bodily form that his descent was like that of a dove not that he looked like a bird if I can make it clear like that the issue isn't that he, the Holy Spirit looked like a dove, the issue is that his descent in bodily form sort of it wasn't like lightning, it was like you know, it was more of a bird kind of gentle and it lighted on Jesus so why does this matter? Why should we spend time talking about it this morning when it's already 10.52? What does it mean? Let me get right to that. We know the Holy Spirit has been involved in Jesus' life from his birth because we know from the very beginning we were told that Jesus' conception was in fact done by whom? The Holy Spirit. So Jesus has been involved all along in the incarnation of the Son but what we have going on here is another fulfillment of Messianic prophecy in the Old Testament. Let me read you one example of this. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah prophesied this. He said, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, which is a Messianic phrase, identification, and a branch from, the, 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 from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall what? It's going to rest upon him. It's going to rest upon him. You flipped a couple pages in Isaiah 42, 1. Behold my servant, this is the suffering servant of Isaiah 42, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, says the Father. What's happening here is this. The Spirit is visibly declaring that the Jesus who's standing in the water of the Jordan River is the promised Messiah of Isaiah 42 and Isaiah chapter 11 and Isaiah 61. That he's the Messiah. It's this public declaration 
And it's also something else. It's also a symbolic way of showing the Spirit's empowerment for Jesus' ministry. It is the Spirit of God that is going to empower and, 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 and bring, bring, bring thrust to the ministry of Jesus. One of the mysteries of the incarnation is that when the Son of God was born, when he stepped out of heaven and he took on human flesh, Philippians 2 tells us that, that well, I'll read it from Philippians 2 instead of butchering Philippians 2, that he emptied himself, verse 7, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. Suffice it to say, when the Son of God stepped out of heaven and he wrapped himself in human flesh and put on humanity, he voluntarily, willingly set aside the independent ability to use his divine attributes. He had a human mind now that was a limitation, though he was omniscient. He can't know all things now. He had a human body, though in eternity past he was omnipresent. Now he can only be in one place at one time. Though he was all-powerful in eternity past, now he is, he, is, he is enfleshed in a human body and he's limited to the power that comes along with that particular body. All of his wonderful, miraculous works from this point on were accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit. He understood God's will and he was sustained by the power of the Holy Spirit. He worked miracles from this point on by the power of the Holy Spirit. He miraculously knew things that other people didn't know and couldn't perceive. How did he do that? He did it by the power of the Holy Spirit. He laid down his life on a cross, we're told, in Hebrews chapter 9, by the power of the Holy Spirit. It was the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, that empowered the ministry of Jesus. And it's important for you to understand that because sometimes people make the mistake of thinking that Jesus had in his humanity some sort of intrinsic power that they don't have. They look at the life and ministry of Jesus and they say, well, look, of course he was obedient. Of course he got things right. After all, he was God. And I'm not. I can't do what he did. And that misses a very important point. Christ never acted in his obedience to the Father out of some intrinsic power that he had in his flesh that you don't have and that I don't have. He acted by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so here's the truth for empowerment. The Spirit empowers Jesus to do the Father's will so that through faith in Jesus, the Spirit might indwell and empower us to do the Father's will. Does that make sense to you? The, the Spirit empowers Christ at his baptism and gives him thrust throughout his ministry so that you and I might look to him and by placing our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, be saved. And in our, that saving work of God, that very same Holy Spirit comes to indwell us and live within us. And the same power that was available to Christ is available to you and available to me. If you and I are going to have success obeying the Lord, it's going to be because we're relying on the power of the Holy Spirit the way Christ did. Not because we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Alexander McLaren said this, <clears throat> He who has the Holy Spirit in his heart and the scriptures in his hand has all he needs. He's right. Let me get to this last pit. A voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son with whom I, with you I am well pleased. The central focus of this text is this sentence. 
this audible voice that must have been incredible, and you'll notice who it's directed to. Who is the voice directed to? It's to Jesus. He says, to you. A similar thing happens at the transfiguration later in Jesus' ministry, a voice from heaven, the Father, right? He says, at that time, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. It's a, a message to the group. Here, the message is from the Father to the Son. What son doesn't want to hear affirmation and words of love from his father? What son doesn't want to hear from his father? You're mine, and I'm proud of you. What's the significance of this? Well, there's a lot that could be said here, but we've only got a couple of minutes. The father, what, what, two things. This is the father's public declaration of Jesus as his only son. We know from John 3, 16, because that's the one verse we all know, right? For the most part. For God so loved the world. Watch me, I'll mess it up. He gave his only begotten son, or his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life, right? God is here publicly declaring that Jesus, the Father is declaring that Jesus, who stands in the Jordan, is that one and only, only begotten son. He's the unique son of God, the eternal son, and he wants everybody there to know it. It is a public proclamation that he is the son of God. Secondarily, it is the Father's public proclamation that Jesus is the Messiah, because the words he uses in this proclamation are pulled from two Old Testament texts. I'm going to give them to you. You can look at them later yourself. Psalm 2-7 and Isaiah 42-1. Psalm 2-7, Isaiah 42-1. Both use phraseology that's almost identical to what the Father speaks here. And they're both messianic prophecies. One is a, a prophecy of the, the coming Messiah as the coming king. And the other in Isaiah is a prophecy of the coming Messiah as a suffering servant. And, and God here in his voice publicly puts the two of those ideas together in this affirmation of his son. And he publicly declares that this Jesus who's being baptized is at one and the same time the suffering servant who's going to die for sins. And he's also the king who's going to rule forever. And so here's the truth that comes with this affirmation. The father affirmed the son so that through faith in Jesus, he might affirm us and welcome us into his family. You know, the truth of the matter is this. Prior to placing our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are God's enemies. That's what the Bible declares. We're not his friends. We're not his buddies. He's not the big man upstairs. He's not a benevolent grandpa who does whatever we want and overlooks all the bad stuff. We are his enemies. And we are under his wrath. That is clear because we are guilty of cosmic treason. But when we place our faith in Jesus, the Bible tells us that in that very moment, we are justified. That means we are declared righteous, declared not guilty of our sin and declared righteous. Though we are actually guilty, our sins are nailed to Jesus' cross and are paid for in full and our debt is forever cleared. That's what happens when you repent and place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The sin, the guilt is washed away. It is wiped away. And in that moment, we are declared righteous. And when that happens to a man, when that happens to a woman, it changes everything about how the Father views you. No longer does he look at you and say, there's a sinner under my wrath. He looks at you and he swells with pride at his child. Not because of your good deeds, but because you're in Christ. 
and you're standing in his righteousness. And the implications of that are absolutely explosive. If you are a Christian here this morning, you have repented of your sin and placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are his son, you are his daughter with whom he is well pleased. Did you hear that? He looks at you and in effect says, that's my boy, that's my girl. Not because you're perfect and you always get it right, but because Jesus is perfect and he got it right for you. And now you're clothed in his perfect righteousness. Listen, I deal with Christians on a fairly regular basis who live absolutely enslaved by shame and self-condemnation for their sin. They falsely believe that God is furious with them They falsely believe that God is ashamed of them. They falsely believe that God is embarrassed by them. You need to understand something this morning. It doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter what you've done. If you've repented of your sin and placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, when the Father looks at you, he sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And he swells with pride. He's pleased with you. Did you hear that this morning? If you're a Christian, you've been justified, and you stand on the righteousness of Jesus, and the Father is pleased with you. There is no need for you to live enslaved to shame at what you've done. There's no need for you to believe that somehow God is ashamed of you or embarrassed by you. He is proud of you. You're his son, you're his daughter. You belong to him. And one day you'll see him face to face. And what you're going to hear on that day is well done, my good and my faithful servant. Enter into your rest. Enter into your rest. All that's going on at the baptism of Jesus. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't the gospel remarkable? Aren't those implications life-changing for you this morning? Listen, if, there's, if the enemy has been whispering into your, into, your, into your ear that you're a failure, that you're a loser, that God hates you, that he's angry with you, that he's ashamed or embarrassed by you, you need to fight back against those lies because that's exactly what those things are. If you've been justified, you've been justified by the Lord Jesus and you are clothed in his perfect righteousness and the Heavenly Father's proud of you. Oh, like a father who loves his children. He may discipline you from time to time to redirect your course. But he loves you. Well, there's more, but that's the baptism of Jesus. Jesus identifying with sinners. Jesus standing in their place in the water so that he can stand in their place on the cross. So that he can destroy our sin we can identify with him. We see the spirit who empowers the Lord Jesus in his ministry, who's available to empower your life right now, this very moment. And we hear a a father's voice saying, I'm pleased with my son. Do you hear that voice saying that about you? If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, none of that's true. What you do need to know is this, that when you see Jesus standing in the water, he is standing in your place. And he's saying to you, I can deal with your sin. 
you'll place your faith in me. If you'll abandon all your human works and all your religious effort. If you'll stop thinking that you can somehow be good enough on your own. And you just turn from your sinful life. And you ask me to forgive you. And you submit your life to me. I'll stand in your place in the water and I'll stand in your place on the cross. you into my family I'll give you my spirit I'll clothe you in my righteousness and I'll secure your eternal home why would you turn down such an offer why would you turn down such an offer and remain in the wrath of God why would you die when you can live why would you live in a world full of darkness wrapped up in all the chaos around us discouraged and depressed you could be free in the Lord Jesus when you could be reconciled to your heavenly father let's pray together this morning if you're not a Christian this morning and you want to know more about what that looks like or what that means or how that happens right after the service I'll be in the back and there'll be others back there we'd love to talk with you pray with you anything that would be a help to you Lord Jesus we, we look at this, this, this baptism of yours and, and we understand some things and yet there's mystery. But we know enough to know this. You're a good, good Savior. That you've done what we could never do for us. And we thank you that you stood in our place. We thank you that you're not a, a, a Messiah who's distant from sinners, but you get right in the crowd and up close and personal and you die for us. All of our filth, you die for it. We thank you that we don't have to live life as Christians in our own power because you give us a helper, your spirit, who gives us the ability to obey, the ability to please you. And Heavenly Father, we thank you for loving us and being pleased with us because of your son. Lord, I pray for my friends in the room who've been dealing with shame, humiliation, embarrassment because of the life they've lived. Oh, Father, help them to see you as a God of love who's well-pleased that they might be drawn to you in worship. Not because they deserve it, because of the blood of Jesus. Spirit of God, plant these truths in our heart and cause us to respond as we need to. For your glory, oh Lord, we pray.